When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. I was one of just two African-American women in my freshman class of about 900 plus. And the other students were sometimes quite unfriendly. And even the professors could be discouraging. One professor advised me when I was considering majoring in physics that colored girls should learn a trade. Now, needless to say, I was quite taken aback and hurt by those low expectations for me, especially since, ironically, I had the highest grades in his class. That was Dr. Shirley Jackson, physicist, president of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and a groundbreaker in every way, including as the first African-American woman to get a PhD from MIT. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. Dr. Jackson made history in 1999 when she became the first woman and first African-American to lead Rensselaer, a world-renowned school that is the oldest technological research university in the United States. Prior to that, Dr. Jackson was an academic, a researcher, and served as head of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Quite a journey for someone who began her education by attending segregated public schools in Washington, D.C. Listen and learn why Dr. Shirley Jackson is one of Seneca's 100 women to hear. I'm here today with Dr. Shirley Jackson, the president of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, 
but just an extraordinary leader in her time, in our time, a very strong leader for the United States in the world of science and more. So, Dr. Jackson, it is an extraordinary pleasure to be with you today. Well, it's my pleasure to be here and my honor. Thank you very much for having me. You are a physicist, which is a a mouthful to say about any women because we have so few women in science and we need far more. But you are not just a physicist. You were the first African-American woman to get a PhD from MIT and the second African-American woman in the United States to earn a doctorate in physics. What was there in your background in growing up that motivated you to go into science and physics when it still seems so elusive a field for women? Well, I would say that it it was rooted in my growing up and my parents who were uh, wonderful. And I think I'd like to tell you just a little bit about them because I think that will explain a lot. Please. My mother uh, was a social worker who originally was a teacher and she loved literature and reading, was an excellent writer. She taught all of us, my siblings and me, to to read before kindergarten. My father uh, was a postal worker who never had the opportunity to graduate from high school, but he was very mathematically and mechanically gifted. He could do many things in his head. He served actually in World War II in a segregated army unit, and during the Normandy invasion, When the rudders of the amphibious uh, vehicles bringing the supplies and some troops to shore kept breaking, he actually was able to improvise a repair with a special splice that he created on the spot. And for that, he received a bronze star. Wow. In fact, his technique was taught to the U.S. Army maintenance units throughout France for the remainder of the conflict. So my parents encouraged my uh, early interest in science. My father actually helped me and my siblings to build and race go-karts of all things. I learned a lot about the principles of mechanics and aerodynamics from this experience. And I quickly figured out that the skill of the go-kart driver was less important than the aerodynamic design of the vehicle, which was a good thing since I was not cut out to be a race car driver. But I also would capture live uh, bees, live bumblebees, and keep them in mason jars under our back porch. We had a crawl space under the porch. And so I would observe how they behaved under different conditions, such as the relative amount of light and darkness they were exposed to over the course of a day. Now, today, we would say that I was doing experiments in circadian biology, which, as you know, refers to the chemical clocks inside our cells that respond to cycles of light and darkness during a 24-hour day. This turns out to be an important area of research, including at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, because we're increasingly finding out more about disruptions in our circadian rhythms having many impacts on our health. But I was also fortunate in that my childhood coincided with great world events that in the end benefited me. In 1957, for example, the then Soviet Union launched Sputnik 1, 
uh, the first uh, Earth-orbiting artificial satellite, which people knew then, but uh, who lived then know, uh, occasioned a degree of panic among uh, U.S. political leaders and policymakers that we might be losing the Cold War. And this sparked the space race, which was really a science-based defense race and spurred a, a rigorous emphasis on math and science in the public schools, which I attended. But this dovetailed with my own interests and abilities and allowed me to excel. And so that was one key element of, of what led me to uh, where I ended up in physics. So many interesting influences, uh, really, and you, you couldn't have predicted uh, much of it, I guess. But you talked about being a product of the times, particularly when it came to Sputnik, but also the court decision on Brown v. Board of Education made a difference in your life. What was the effect that that ruling in 1954 did for you? Because as the court ruled that uh, U.S. state laws establishing racial segregation in the public schools was no longer constitutional. It was unconstitutional. How did that affect your life? Well, I'm glad you asked me about that because the, the Brown uh, the Board of Education decision, you know, overlapped in time with the launch of the Sputnik satellite. And because of that uh, momentous Supreme Court decision, the public schools in Washington, D.C. were desegregated in 1955. This meant that I could attend a, a good school right in my own neighborhood with children from backgrounds that were different than mine, which introduced me to new perspectives, but also with more competition, which spurred me on. Interestingly enough, before then, uh, we would have to travel past that school to a school miles away that mm. had been the school for what we, they then called colored children. Mm. But after the Brown v. Board of Education decision, we could walk to that school. It then turned out that I was tested uh, in the sixth grade uh, into an accelerated honors academic program beginning in the seventh grade, which allowed me actually to finish the regular college prep curriculum a year early and overall to finish high school with a number of college-level courses and courses that people would call AP courses today. I also was the valedictorian of my high school graduating class, and, and that all opened the door for me to go to, to MIT. So what a liberating impact that had. Uh, and we need to think over and over today why these decisions of this kind matter so greatly. So you talked about the acceleration that that provided you, and then you went on to MIT, and you were studying theoretical physics there. You were one of fewer than 20 Black students, not just Black students in physics, but all told uh, at MIT. Now, what was that like for you, and what kind of lessons or impressions did you take from it that have stayed with you? Well, thank you for asking that as well. You know, I uh, arrived at MIT uh, just a year after the 1963 March on Washington in 1964 as an undergraduate. And, and when I arrived, it was, as it is today, a challenging and thrilling place to receive an education, particularly one in what we 
referred to as STEM fields. But it also was rather cold on the personal front. Uh, I was one of just two African-American women in my freshman class of about 900 plus. And the other students were sometimes quite unfriendly. So I was not invited, for example, to join uh, the study groups that uh, the women in my dorm formed. And even the professors could be discouraging. And even though I was doing well, one, one professor advised me when I was considering majoring in physics uh, that colored girls should learn a trade. Now, needless to say, I was quite taken aback and hurt by those low expectations for me, especially since, ironically, I had the highest grades in his class. Mm. To be honest, uh, because of how my parents had raised me, I thought about my chances and my choices. And a chance had made me colored, what we would say is African-American today. Chance had made me a female, a girl. Now, I readily embrace both of those. But in terms of choice, uh, I chose physics, uh, irrespective of of what this particular professor had advised. And so uh, I, in talking with my parents, and even though I was hurt, I was faced with the option of either giving in to ignorance or pursuing excellence. And so I chose the latter. And I am so glad that I did because I've had a wonderful life and career. Now I'll tell you a little bit more because that also had an impact on the course of my life. In the spring of my senior year, while I was deciding where to attend graduate school, and frankly, feeling that I was ready to leave MIT, uh, the University of Pennsylvania Physics Department, which had accepted me into its graduate program, invited me to visit. And I had a great visit. But as I was leaving Penn after the visit in a car with my sorority sister, on my way to the Philadelphia airport, the radio broadcast was interrupted, and we learned that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had been shot in Memphis and later died. And we nearly drove the car off the road. By the time I got back to Cambridge, I knew and I had decided that I would remain at MIT for graduate school. I was inspired and had been by the courage of Dr. King and the other leaders of the civil rights movement. And I knew that MIT was a place where I could have a great opportunity to change things for the better. So within a few months of beginning uh, my graduate program, I was one of the co-founders of the Black Students Union, and we presented 10 proposals to the MIT administration. Now, to ourselves, we call them demands. To the administration, we call them proposals. Yes, smart. (laughs) (laughs) And then Associate Provost Paul Gray, who later became president of MIT, listened, um, and he formed uh, a task force on educational opportunity. Uh, That was the administration's response. And I was asked to join it. Now, that task force accomplished a great deal, and MIT did begin to hire uh, Black administrators and some faculty and began for the first time to recruit minority students. 
It also initiated a summer program called Project Interface that helped to prepare incoming minority freshmen for the rigorous coursework they would encourage and that uh, they would encounter rather at MIT. And although I was still a graduate student, I was asked to teach in and then ultimately to take over and design the physics curriculum uh, after the first year of that program. I'm proud to say that the African-American students I helped to bring to MIT and helped to adjust to its culture did very well. Uh, They've gone on to be very, very high-level professionals. They proved to the world that scientific and engineering talent is not restricted to one race, one sex, or one story of origin, or one gender choice. And because I had proven that I could both excel in theoretical physics and identify practical ways to address an intricate institutional challenge, I ultimately was offered many more opportunities for leadership. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You know, listening to you, I I just say to myself, thank God that uh, you had the the constitution uh, to overcome some of these cultural shocks. That you had the resilience to keep your eye on the prize, so to speak, because your accomplishments have been so substantial. You know, I remember first knowing Dr. Shirley Jackson when I was in the Clinton administration, and you were the chair of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Now, I didn't know much about what the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was doing, but you were a giant, and you continue to be, obviously. And you've gone on now to be president of Rensselaer uh, Polytechnic Institute, the oldest technological research university in the United States. 
So by all accounts, it's been an institution that you have in many ways transformed. So what was it like starting out at RPI? And then what was your vision and what continues to be your motivation? Well, let me just give you a bit of history about Rensselaer. Rensselaer has had a, a, a rich history since 1824. It's the, actually the oldest private technological university in the U.S. And that history includes producing outstanding graduates, uh, the ones who have designed and built much of the physical and early digital infrastructure of the U.S. and the world. And I just mentioned a few, the Transcontinental Railroad, the microprocessor, the digital camera, and the first mapping and sequencing of the genomes of disease pathogens. All of these were spearheaded by our uh, graduates. And I was intrigued by the fact that here was another uh, great technological university, not unlike the one where I had gotten my degrees. And the board of trustees uh, indicated that it wanted a change agent. And because of what I had accomplished at the NRC that you mentioned so kindly, uh, they felt that I could make a difference. And I had transformed the regulatory program of the NRC as well as how it operated. Now, by the time I was asked to assume the presidency of uh, Rensselaer by its board of trustees, uh, the university had gone through a somewhat a rudderless period when it had five leaders in 14 years. They, oh, my. It was a much beloved prior president who unfortunately passed away in office who had been associate administrator of NASA. His name was George Lowe. And, but after he passed away, the, the university went through this series of presidents and acting presidents. So I was asked to come in to stabilize it, but to transform it at the same time. And so we developed a plan that we simply called the Rensselaer Plan because it was built on the idea of the original Rensselaerian plan, which laid out the program of work and study for the original uh, Rensselaer Institute, which became Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. By the way, uh, even being founded in 1824, what also intrigued me was that Rensselaer was founded to educate men and women. Oh, interesting. It was founded to educate the sons and daughters. It said of farmers and mechanics who would apply science to the common purposes of life. And so we, that plan covered everything from improving the undergraduate experience, both from a, uh, a student life perspective, a curricular perspective, and literally the facilities the students uh, lived in and spent time in. But I also felt that we had to make a down payment in uh, new research thrusts that would be uh, important to the, the U.S. and to the world going forward. And so in our research enterprise, uh, we made major investments in five what we call signature thrust areas that we felt would be of fundamental importance in the 21st century. And they include uh, computational science and engineering, biotechnology and the life sciences, uh, nanotechnology and advanced materials, uh, energy, the environment and smart systems. And here's the interesting one media, the arts, science, and technology. Wow. 
you've talked about the quiet crisis that this country faces, challenges to American innovation and competitiveness. Why are we in a quiet crisis and what should we be doing about it? Well, when you think about it, if you think about women and then you add underrepresented minorities, then you're talking about a majority of the population. So if we're trying to solve national and global challenges, as well as trying to compete with other nations, we can't do that without engaging the full complement of talent. So our natural failure to bring women and underrepresented minorities into the STEM professions in the way we should in sufficient numbers does represent a, a quiet crisis. And it's quiet because it takes years to to educate and train high-functioning professionals in these fields. But it's a crisis because our uh, livelihoods, our national defense and security, homeland security, as well as our ability to help uplift other nations all rests on uh, excellence in these areas and tapping the complete talent pool. And so the United States has just not been making the progress it should, and in some fields going backwards. If you think of the remarkable opportunities and job growth in the computer sciences and related areas, think about that it makes no sense that in 1996, African-Americans earned nearly 10% of bachelor's degrees in computer science. And 20 years later, we were at 8.7%, so 10% to 8.7%. But if you look at the situation with women, it's even more stark, where the share of bachelor's degrees in computer science declined over 20 years from 27% to under 19%. And so we can and should do better. You know, I I heard a female scientist some years ago talk about the situation you just described as a ticking time bomb that we critically needed to address, or we were going to find ourselves in exactly the situation you just described. So what do we do about the underrepresentation, certainly for women and women of color? Uh, We aren't where we need to be. There's so many conversations today about getting women into STEM. What should we be doing that we're not doing? Well, the, the, the first thing we have to do is to believe and acknowledge and recognize the importance of bringing the full complement of talent on board. Men, women, people of all ethnic backgrounds, gender choices. And so we have to start there. And then we have to start early with ensuring that uh, young people are invited and excited into STEM fields and that they get the right grounding in the fundamentals and can experience early success and exposure to what can be wrought uh, through a career rooted in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And in many ways, the education is quite cumulative. You know, one cannot uh, do algebra and trigonometry and if one cannot add, subtract, multiply, and divide. And and one can't do calculus and differential equations if one can't do all the things leading up to it. So it's important that we 
raise and, and maintain the baseline level. And so those things coupled with removing barriers, you know, not trying to disadvantage a group because one is trying to ensure that uh, those who've been underrepresented uh, have an opportunity, uh, but to elevate all of us. And frankly, we need to have more of our own citizens uh, joining and, and going into these fields, even as we still recognize how much high-level talent we've attracted historically uh, from abroad, although that may be changing. Well, you mentioned uh, education, even at the earliest levels, getting fundamental math and science beyond then going into the more challenging aspects of, of the field. Is confidence an issue with women generally, women of color at a certain age, that they drop out before even realizing this great potential they have to more seriously get into the field? Well, I think there are complexities that African-American women and women of color face that are, that are rooted in the challenges that women face on the one hand and minorities face on the other. Now, we know that uh, women get dissuaded, many of them by the time they're in middle school, from really thinking of themselves in these fields. And there's some fields that have been very uh, male-dominated. And that then will obviously redound to have an effect on uh, African-American or and minority women generally. But then it's further exacerbated by sort of a, kind of a lack of confidence or belief in the talents of African-Americans in this country and, and other minorities in terms of uh, people seeing them, seeing us in these fields. And then that can become self-inculcated so that the given individual doesn't see herself as either being able to do these uh, do work in these fields, or even if they believe they could do it and are excited by the work, they may feel the mountains are too high to climb. And so people move and do other things. That's why you're such an inspiration. I just wanted to, uh, as our, our time is running out here, to ask you about the future, about your hopes. It's a very challenging time by any definition. And you've talked about challenges that you went through that still beset our country in many ways. What gives you hope in 2021? Well, let me start this way. All of us in higher education are by definition in the hope business. <laughs> Love that. Because we educate the next generations of innovators and discovery, discoverers and those who will be policymakers, etc. But from the perspective of the kind of institution I lead, you know, we really focus on those who will innovate, who will invent, who will discover, and join with those who come from other fields of endeavor to create what needs to be created to keep us moving forward. And so I believe it is truly the most important work in the world. And certainly here at Rensselaer, we are educating many dynamic women leaders in science and technology, we have women professors in computer science who have had great success in drawing young women into the field by proving to them 
that one does not have to grow up uh, gaming or programming as many of the young men in the class do in order to succeed. In fact, our young women do quite well when they're here. Uh, they graduated very high rates and they go on to do amazing things. We have more challenge with uh, attracting and retaining minority students. But again, those who come here, they hang in, they do well, and they go on to do important things. And then there's another cause for hope that while women still struggle, some of them to be promoted in corporations, we are seeing more of them move into the C-suite. And pre-pandemic, many women were starting businesses at a rather torrid rate. Uh, Nationwide, the number of women-owned businesses grew by uh, about 21% over the five-year period from 2014 to 2019. And in fact, firms owned by women of color grew 43%. And that's despite the fact that women-founded companies attract only a fraction of the available uh, venture capital. Now, the pandemic, of course, has put new stresses on many women, but I'm one who believes that times of upheaval can open up opportunities for those previously shut out of them. As we discussed at the beginning of our conversation, I benefited from a society in flux in the 1960s and 70s, which offered possibilities to me that would not have been offered to my parents. And I'm one who believes that one has to step through one's window in time when it opens and to take advantage of whatever those opportunities there are offered. And so we've now arrived at another moment when there is at least uh, more discussion about inequality of opportunity, that it being recognized as something that in our democracy, at least in most quarters, is not something that we should have define us or be tolerable. And so I suspect on the one hand that this current moment will inspire a new generation of women leaders and a new generation of uh, leaders of color, including African-Americans. There's evidence that more of them want to go into medicine because of what has happened to minority communities in this pandemic. And so people will continue to aspire and strive, and then the society has to respond. And, and have those windows open, those doors open, those ceilings shattered. And then with that, we will be an even greater country and global leader than ever. And, and I do believe that. Oh, that's so beautifully said. Embrace this moment. And there's no telling where we can go. Thank you so much, Dr. Jackson. When I think scientist, educator, role model. You're certainly a leader of our time. This has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. What an incredible woman. There's so much wisdom in what Dr. Shirley Jackson has to say. Here are three things I took away from that conversation. First, never underestimate the power of national events to shape individual lives. 
Two historical moments had a big impact on her future. The 1954 Supreme Court case, Brown versus the Board of Education, which desegregated public schools and allowed her to get a better, broader education. And the 1957 launch of Sputnik, which made science a priority for the United States. Second, we need to pay attention to what Dr. Jackson calls the quiet crisis in the United States. That is, when we fail to bring women and minorities into the STEM professions, we fall behind as a nation because we're not tapping into our full talent pool. And finally, let's take hope from Dr. Jackson's words about this current moment that current challenges will inspire a new generation of women leaders and leaders of color. And as a result, the windows will open, the doors will open, and the ceilings will shatter. Tune in next Tuesday to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.